have come back and may not have come back. And I just didn't put no attention because sometimes this uh, trip to McDonald's was a better thing than recalling what you did yeah. the night before. Right. Yeah. So you can never recall what you did the night before, really? Not, not all the time, no. sometimes. Welcome to the final episode of my investigation into the confessions of Angel Resendiz. Before we move on, just a reminder that we have a couple more special episodes for you after this one, beginning with a listener Q&A next week. So get your questions in to me about Resendiz, Daryl Colahaco's murder, Blythe, Diamantina, Andres, or any lingering questions that you might still have. You can do this on the Dead Man Talking Facebook page, on Twitter at Dead Man Podcast, or if you're more of an email person, at Dead Man Talking Podcast at Outlook.com. DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking Podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. In the last episode, you'll remember we heard from Kathy Burnett at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. Along with her final year law students, Kathy had been through Andres Mascaro's case files and found possible racial bias and prosecutorial misconduct, among other things. But crucially, she also found that a federal agent had approached people in the neighborhood near where Daryl Colahaco was murdered, showing them a picture of a suspect who wasn't Andres. We know the feds would not have got involved unless they were interested in someone who'd either killed multiple times or who had killed across state lines, or both. Kathy told me that with this information, Andres now has enough to file a habeas appeal, which could potentially lead to either a retrial or an acquittal. I left my meeting with Kathy knowing that her team would work on the case, but crucially, I first needed to find a lawyer to file the habeas petition. So, did I find a lawyer? You'll have to wait a few more minutes to find out. The railroad serial killer. The railway serial killer. Railway serial killer. Clearly, this was somebody that was riding the rails. Now, I never imagined back in October when the podcast launched that by re-looking at the murder of Daryl Colahaco, it could lead to a legal development and show the massive problems with the convictions of Diamantina Colahaco and Andres Mascaro. When Pete, the producer, and I began working on this podcast, we'd got no idea what direction it would take. I'm just going to give it a test to see if it, see if it works, OK? Well, just uh, give me two seconds. I had these old tape confessions, but I wasn't sure which way our investigation would point, which of the murders Resendiz had confessed to would lead to something concrete and which would hit a dead end. You'll recall from the very first episode that when I interviewed him, I was a music journalist. I was new to this kind of thing, and I wasn't expecting him to confess to all these additional murders. And that was shocking. I wasn't prepared for that. And so, you know, I'm hurriedly writing down these notes and asking him for more detail. And then, of course, I lost the tape. 
and then I found it again. I remember just stopping everything and going into the house and putting this tape in a drawer and thinking... Fine, in the early days, you'll remember that I had a hunch he was telling me the truth on this tape, but I had nothing to back it up. So what about now? Well, that hunch has evolved. What I've discovered along the way only crystallises in my mind my belief that he was telling me the truth. Now, we know that there are issues with the prosecution of Andres Mascaro, but let's have a look at all of the other evidence that I've gathered along the way. I think it will be useful to have a quick run-through of the highlights to help build a complete picture. It's been a long time. We've been talking to each other on by mail for a long time. Starting yeah, I with finally, when I finally met Diamantina. I'm hearing impaired, so it's kind of... She said there was a problem with the confession she signed, admitting her guilt in arranging Daryl's murder. She also says she didn't have her glasses on when she signed the confession and wasn't aware of what she was signing. Next, she told me that Resendiz wrote her a letter confessing to the crime and describing her house in detail. Now, what did the letter say? He described some of my house. How would he know? He said that uh, when he looked uh, towards up the stairs, there was a big old uh, canvas painting, which there was. The carpet was pink, and yes, it was. After my trip to the prison, I met with the former AP reporter, Mark Babinek. I felt like I owed it, not to him, but to the facts, if you will. To Resendiz uh, had also confessed to him about killing Daryl, and Mark followed this up by visiting the Colahaco house and saw that the specific kind of details Resendiz had uh, mentioned did house. check out. And like I said, unusual details. Not that the house was pink or red or blue or whatever it was, but things like the wooden privacy fence had a serpentine shape to it. Why, why on earth would that have been mentioned in a newspaper? I spoke to serial killer expert Jack Levin to get his view on the confessions. He hated being on death row. He said he that most serial killers try and postpone their execution, but Resendiz was different. He wanted to die. I think he was willing to lead the authorities to cases, not so as to delay execution, but to hasten it. Zendis wanted to get credit for the murders. Murders that were committed but remained unsolved around the country. I met with false memory expert Chuck Weaver to find out if Resendiz could really forget details about murdering people or indeed how many people he'd killed. Oh, certainly, if you've killed... He said it's easy to imagine Resendiz would forget killing people as he'd done it so many times. Uh, it's certainly possible for people to confuse, to confabulate, to get events mixed up. He said the confessions were more likely blending of information that he's remembering from some other killings and things he'd read about so he lost the ability to know what was made up and what was true so i think it's certainly possible that what he's saying he genuinely believed happened chuck says that resendis probably killed more people than we know about but i suspect that he did not kill as many people as has he claimed You'll recall I met Delia Perez, who's convinced of her brother Lewis's innocence. You keep his photo um, yes. on, the, on yeah. the site all the time. Yeah, yeah. This, this picture never, never leaves. He's on death row after being convicted of killing over. three people in Austin, one of whom was a child. Delia thought that Resendiz may have been to blame for this. Like, nope. Journalist Lisa Olson investigated these possible links between Resendiz and the murders in Austin. He was quiet. He was, um, he seemed almost excessively subdued. She spoke to him on death row and he denied the killing, stating... He would never kill a child. 
in fact, saw himself as a defender of children. Lisa told me that we should concentrate on Daryl's murder and Resendez was unlikely to be involved with these murders in Austin. And of course, I visited Andres in prison to get his account. He said his confession was false and the police said his family would be deported if he didn't sign it. He never had an attorney present at any moment. He also claimed the confession was badly translated into Spanish and he didn't know what he was signing. And the only thing that they told me was sign here and here, but he didn't know what, what he was signing. I heard from Doug Keane, a psychologist here in Austin. He said that Andres' story of being forced into a confession was understandable. We have a person who is frightened. We have somebody who doesn't fully appreciate the American justice system. They know that they are vulnerable to getting deported. Doug also told me how common false confessions are in the U.S. And if it's in Texas, it's almost certain that you don't have a recording or a transcript of interviews that led up to the confession. I then found out that, amazingly, evidence from the Colahaco crime scene has been lost, including clothing and the murder weapon. I put in an open records request to the Harris County District Attorney's Office. DNA could have been the most straightforward way to prove who killed Daryl. And that's incredible. The most obvious way Andres and Diamantina could be exonerated if they truly are innocent seems to be lost. I spoke to Bill Gifford, Diamantina's trial attorney, and he dropped this bombshell. Did he tell you the reason he made the confession is because the preacher went up there and told him to? I didn't know that. What do, you, what do you mean by that? What I'm saying is there was a guy in the... A preacher kind of guy that had to go into the jail. Went to Resendez and said, you're going to die anyway. Go ahead and say that you had something to do with the Colo Jacko killing. Said, sure, I'll do it. Do you have a name? No, I really don't. But I've been unable to find out any information about this preacher or to prove whether this happened at all. It is just a rumour after all. Yes, he, when he described the scene, he made a description that made no sense to me mm. until I saw the picture on the wall. This is Les Ribnick, Resendez's appeals attorney. I discovered that Resendez had also told him about killing Daryl and gave him physical descriptions of the crime scene, such as which paintings were hanging on the walls. So he told you there was a picture on the wall of... The Nina Defenta... Santa Maria. Any information that only somebody who had been there would, would know. Resendez had told Les how Daryl had made a pass at him, which was his justification for killing him. According to Resendez, and Resendez had no tolerance for homosexuals. He came into the house and attacked Colahaco, bludgeoning him to death. After looking at the photos Les showed me of the Colahaco murder scene, I thought the amount of blood spatter on the ceiling seemed to indicate a very violent killing. Murders tend to get more and more brutal as the killer goes from one victim to another. I spoke to Jack Levin again to see if this suggested a serial murderer rather than a first-time killer, which is what Andres would have been. The brutality of the crime in Houston suggests that this was a repeat murder. Bruce Cohen, the psychologist who assessed Resendez in prison, then told me this... So the question would be, what reason would he have uh, to confess to these to you? I, I don't see reason not to believe that there were further murders. Resendez also told him he killed a man when he made a pass at him. And when I asked him why he felt the need to kill this man, he replied, because he was homosexual and wanted to have sex with me. 
It was a, a crime of opportunity. She was out there gardening. I then spoke to journalist Bill Torpy, who told me about the murder of an elderly woman in Georgia, a case which had strong comparisons with my investigation. That's what she was doing that day that she died. Resendiz had confessed to this murder from prison, but unlike with his confession to Collar Hacko's murder, detectives followed this up and a man and woman were released from prison. And he told about the Bible that she had. and In fact, Lieutenant Pryor tried to trip him up and said, okay, then he had to jump over the fence to get into her house. And he goes, no, there was no fence. And they knew, I think, then that it was true because there was no fence. In the first episode, I pondered whether Resendiz had been lying to me, seeing me as a green journalist who'd lap up everything he told me. This is the crux of the podcast series. Am I being led down the garden path by a serial killer who made me buy him donuts before he'd speak to me? Or are a couple serving time for a murder they didn't commit? Well, it's been a long time since I asked this question, and I think I can safely say that I don't think he was trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Not only have I managed to corroborate some of what he told me, but other people who knew him have also said they believed he was telling the truth. By looking at other cases he confessed to, like the killing of Fanny Byers in Georgia, and by examining other cases where his recollections were so sketchy that there's little evidence he was involved, like the murder in Austin, Texas, for which Luis Perez sits on death row, I felt it only solidified my belief that he was telling the truth. If Resendez's intention was to become the most prolific serial killer, why would he confess to some murders and make it clear he wasn't responsible for others and say he just couldn't say either way when it came to still other killings? Also in that first episode, I spoke to the lone survivor of Resendiz, Holly Dunn. Holly told me this. There is always that underlying thought that he could be lying, but then you have to investigate to the fullest. So have I done this? Regarding the murder of Daryl Colahaco, I'd say yes. One place is in the border between Arizona and California. There were three or four in the border. But I'm frustrated. I couldn't shed more light on Resendez's confessions about the supposed murders in Blythe, California, mainly because I believe I was the only person he gave such detailed information to. Can you give me a, d- a more accurate place in between? If, you, if you're going in the, uh, on Highway 10. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking at the map here, and this is called Blythe. This has got to be what he's talking about, because... There is From listening to the tape, I made an assessment as to where Resendez could be talking about and headed to Blythe, California. I think he definitely was here to give that description, um, because that's the only place where the ten Chief Jeff Wade of Blythe Police Department agreed that the location Resendez was describing on the tape was indeed Blythe. It would be easy for a body to uh, go undiscovered for 20, 30 years. I mean, it happens all the time. And so it, it's concerning to me that we have families out there that, that don't have any closure because we haven't found these bodies that are possibly there. We went to the exact location Resendiz had described at the Colorado River and in Interstate 10. This is where he said he killed several gay men. It is a kind of, I hate to call it a make-out spot, but, right. but anywhere along the river is obviously a romantic spot to come usually, so that wouldn't be uncommon. 
This is our station commander, David hey, how are you? I didn't think I'd still oh, no, be here, nice but I am. Hi, I also played the tape to detectives at the Riverside County Sheriff's Office, and they weren't comfortable making assumptions about the confessions. I don't know. It, you know, it, you listen to a recording. I, I couldn't speculate on that. Thomas, you? It, it's just so vague. And this area is so large. I tried the lost and found database on them, showing the missing people and unidentified dead that we'd located in the area. And again, we wouldn't be able to speculate. I mean, that would be, it would be impossible for us to speculate if any of those would be even related. I next took the tape to the La Paz County Sheriff's Office. So the speed of that river would carry a body if it stayed unsnagged. Mm -hmm. You could go to Cibola. The Lost and Found database did actually have details of human remains found in Cibola during the years Resendiz was active. However, there was no sign of trauma on the skeletal remains. I wanted to know if somebody could be murdered by being hit with a blunt object, which was Resendiz's method of killing, and it not leave a mark on the bones. So I asked Dr. Dorney Stedman, an anthropologist. I would find it hard to fathom getting killed by a rock and it not leaving a mark. I mean, it could happen. We see weird things. But I think that to be hit hard enough to kill somebody would probably leave at least a depression fracture, if not... I also told the Riverside County Coroner's Office about the confessions to see if they could help. That type of search for us is exceptionally difficult. Our strong database, you know, in terms of really immediately searchable stuff doesn't start till 2012. Everything else beyond that is virtually hand search. With more time and resources, perhaps I can revisit this case later on, but I feel frustrated. I seem to reach a dead end. But what happened in Florida certainly filled me with hope that I was on the right track. You'll recall that I spoke to journalist Joe Callahan about this. Jesse Howell got off the train stretch his legs, smoke a cigarette. Resendez is believed to have gotten the, a coupling that couples the two trains together very heavy and struck him in the back of the head there on the railroad tracks. From death row, Resendez had confessed to killing a couple, Wendy Von Huben and Jesse Howell, but Von Huben's body hadn't been found. Detectives from Florida flew to Texas to interview Resendez and verify the story and told him exactly about how far they went after he killed Jess Howell, where they could find her. Just like his confession to me, Resendez was vague with the details, but he managed to lead detectives to Von Huben's body. Well, with, with Resendez, he can never remember towns. Like I told you about the Von Huben, he said it was another So there's precedent to Resendez's confessions being accurate, and there's certainly something to build on here. I can't help feeling that there's more that can be done. Maybe the little information that he gave me about the murders in Blythe is enough for detectives there to someday find his victims. A brief word from one of our sponsors. Hiring can be pretty time-consuming. You post a job to several online job boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Then you have to sort through those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ziprecruiter.com slash DMT. 
Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education and experience and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US and this rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash DMT. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, in the last episode, I left Kathy in the law school knowing that I needed to find a lawyer to file the habeas appeal for Andres. And as we know, lawyers aren't cheap, so it would have to be a pro bono lawyer. In other words, somebody who works for free. Well, did I find a lawyer? Not quite, but what I did find is possibly even better. My name is John Harden. I'm the executive director of Proclaim Justice. It's an innocence project based here in Austin, Texas. So we reinvestigate crimes and look to get innocent people out of prison. I recently sent John the Mascaro trial documents, as well as the unedited version of my interview with Kathy, so he was completely up to speed with everything. When you hear about why Proclaim Justice formed, you'll understand why I was keen for them to get involved. Are you familiar with the case of the West Memphis Three? It's a well-publicised case, so I expect many of you are, but if not, here's a quick recap. Three teenagers who were convicted of the violent murders of three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993. The theory of the crime was that it was a satanic ritualistic killing. Uh, We were in the throes of what we now refer to as satanic panic. All these things are attributed to kids and people worshipping Satan and listening to heavy metal music and all of these things. Well, they they were caught up in that. After the murders, authorities had their eyes on Damien Eccles, who they saw as the ringleader of this satanic cult, and his best friend, Jason Baldwin. So what they did was they found a way to target those guys by going to a third person, Jesse Miss Kelly. Jesse is uh, challenged mentally to some degree. They essentially rigged the game to get Jesse to falsely confess to this crime and implicate Jason and Damien. This proved to be enough to secure three convictions. Jason and Jesse were sentenced to life in prison, and Damien received the death penalty. John's originally from Arkansas and became interested in the case. He moved back there to set up a non-profit to support activists, and he also supplied legal assistance. Fast forward to 2007, and there were some legal developments involving DNA. A hair found at the crime scene did not implicate any of the boys. We wound up winning an important decision in front of the Arkansas Supreme Court. We were very confident that that would lead to a new trial for them, but you never know how long that's going to take. Fast forward to 2011, they entered into what's called an Alfred plea. An Alfred plea is a plea where the defendant asserts their innocence while admitting that the evidence presented by the prosecution would likely lead to a guilty verdict beyond reasonable doubt. Rather than wait on new trials, this would let the state maintain their conviction, but the guys could publicly profess and maintain their innocence, and they were released. 
The West Memphis Three, as your listeners may know, uh, was sort of a cause celeb case. There were multiple documentaries and a feature film made about it. And it involved celebrities like Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam was highly involved. Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks, Johnny Depp, Henry Rollins, the list goes on and on. Jason wanted to use that terrible situation that happened to him for these people who don't have those celebrities on their side, who don't have films made about their cases. And so what we did was we started reaching out to them to see if we could keep that network together. We're fortunate to have Natalie Maines as our board chair. So that's how they formed. But what does Proclaim Justice actually do? We take all these contributions and we screen cases and we try to do this internal investigation. Usually takes us several months at least to really arrive at a decision that we believe this person is innocent. And then we're going to take them on as a client. Uh, and We hire attorneys to do the work, uh, whatever state it is. So you basically, your charity pays for attorneys. Uh, once you take on a case and you say, we're going to fight this one, you pay for attorneys to go and file. That's right. That's right. All of the work done on every case comes at no cost to any of the inmates, which they don't have any money anyway, or their family members. We do it all. We hire the attorneys. We undertake all the investigative costs. They've been extremely successful in helping innocent people have their convictions overturned. And this includes the high-profile case of Tim Howard, who was acquitted a year ago of a double murder in Ashdown, Arkansas. So that's the background to Proclaim Justice. And as you can tell, they're a perfect fit for my investigation. The key for me is not only their track record, but the fact that they have the resources and attorneys at their disposal. Attorneys that could file habeas appeals, for example. As I mentioned, I sent John the trial documents along with Kathy's interview prior to meeting him. So what does he think and will he take the case on? One of our very experienced investigators has been digging into this some too. He and I have sort of been batting notes back and forth. There's obviously some concerning things. What, what did you find concerning? There's a number of things. So anytime you've got a case like this a violent, violent crime, and there's no physical evidence linking the convicted person, that should raise some red flags. Anytime a murder is solved in 24 hours or something extremely fast like this, that's another red flag. There's even just some really troubling things like losing the case files and stuff for Harris County. That seems like every time that happens, or at least most times that I know of, there's something nefarious going on there that may well not be the case with Harris County. And then whenever you get a somebody who's confessing, that doesn't happen all the time. That piques your interest a little bit too when you have somebody else confessing to the crime. So what did John think about Kathy's findings that a federal agent had been showing people in the neighborhood near the crime scene a photograph of somebody that wasn't Andres? On its face, anyway, there's no reason that a federal law enforcement officer would be there. It was all in Texas. At least at that time that the U.S. Marshal was there, there was no indication that this was a kind of some kind of interstate crime spree or anything like that. And then also, apparently showing a photo. Who is that of? That doesn't add up to me. So that's something that we really want to, you know, investigate more. So that's interesting. You you say you want to investigate it more. What's your what's happening? <laughs> what's happening right now? Are you are you looking more at this case? What's what what are your plans? Absolutely, we're looking at the case. It's it's very intriguing. Jason Baldwin has has dug into the case a decent bit too, and and he's troubled by it. 
We absolutely are looking into it and where we are at in the process, what we do is we take our time and we really, you know, we'll spend resources investigating, re-interviewing witnesses and all the while letting the potential client know that we are not signing them up right now. But we investigate these things with the aim of figuring out our own opinion. And that usually takes us a few months. Now, you guys have already relocated some of the key people that would make our work easier. We're well on our way to forming an opinion about this. But so many red flags. The law school have said that they would write the brief. They would do all the research needed. Um, yes in terms of a potential habeas appeal. What does that look like if this does actually come together? So for us, for Proclaim Justice, what that looks like is we will continue. We've got a long list of questions based on Danny, the uh, the investigator on our team. So he and I have a long list of actions that we want to take, people that we want to go interview ourselves, not the least of which is Andres Mascaro. We've got a great network of attorneys that do great post-conviction work, innocence work. I know that Kathy and her team would not be the lead attorneys on this. So we would secure an attorney, a very experienced, great post-conviction attorney to represent Mascaro. We would be the investigative team and work with him or her, partner with Kathy and her team to figure out which direction each of us need to go in and get some innocent people out of prison should we arrive at that conclusion. It's pretty mind-blowing that we kind of seem to be all on the same page and my hunches seem to be right about the the troubling nature of this case. So, I mean, just to get to this point where, uh, you know, I know we're not in court and we're not filing a habeas appeal yet, right. but it's um, it's pretty amazing that it's come this far. With the Mascaro case, let's say that we go through and there's something really to this, and which I already believe there is, but our investigation bears that out. How valuable would it be to be able to talk to Resendez about this stuff. So just this is one of those collateral things about innocence as it relates to the death penalty too. It's not just the fear of executing an innocent person. It's the fact that sometimes we execute somebody who may help us get an innocent person out of prison. It's tantamount to destroying evidence. It actually. is. I mean, he, you know, I have this crackly C90 cassette, which I recorded in 2003 and, you know, I'd say this in in, epi- in the first episode of the um, podcast series. I hold my hands up. I was out of my depth on death row interviewing yeah. this guy. I really hadn't, you know, gone into his case as deeply as I should. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if he was still alive today, we could go back to him and say, I know your memory was hazy on these things. But look, you've told me more details about these potentially four victims in Blythe, California than you have anyone else. In fact, you've given me such detail that I was able to say that it was in Blythe, California, a place that you never told any... You didn't even use the name Blythe because you couldn't remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, coming over. Yeah, thank you, Thanks a lot, John. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) John comes across as a really dedicated and genuine guy and he seems as troubled as I am by Mascaro's trial and whereas I'd been looking for an attorney, proclaimed justice getting involved could actually end up being even better for Andres and Diamantina in the long run. These guys have got access to the best attorneys, the funding and the support network. 
And it's a pretty amazing end, to be honest, to this investigation. It shows that it was worthwhile following up on this Resendiz confession from 15 years ago. The reason I don't, I don't blame myself yeah. is because I don't have the evidence in my mind. Okay. If I, if I can remember like this case, I don't remember everything. Right. But I have enough to blame myself because, because of the things I recall. But John makes a really good final point here. How much easier would all of this be if Resendiz was still alive and in prison? If Andres and Diamantina are really innocent, it could make the process of exonerating them that much easier. And my investigation into the four potential victims in Blythe, California, may not have hit a brick wall as they did if we could only ask Resendiz for more details. Some friends of mine once made a series of short films about the death penalty called One for Ten to highlight the fact that for every ten people executed in the US, one person is freed from death row with evidence of their innocence. And nobody for one second thinks Resendiz was innocent of any of the crimes attributed to him. But I think this podcast has shown that there's another potential casualty with the death penalty as well. By executing Resendiz, I think we also managed to destroy valuable evidence. That evidence could have potentially led to closure for loved ones of four possible victims on the Arizona-California state line. It could have possibly helped free Diamantina Colajaco and Andres Mascaro, if indeed they're innocent. And perhaps there are others. And sometimes I used to find myself with bloody pants or shoes. Yeah. And I couldn't recall exactly what I did. But uh, since I cannot blame nobody, I just stay shot. And I say, I'm not going to just blame. I got Looking through unsolved crimes around the country, it's not hard to find murders that fit Resendez's timeline and his method of killing. Some are hauntingly similar to murders that we know he committed. Like this one I found in an old newspaper report. Did Resendez kill two people in Tennessee? Police and FBI agents investigating the double murder of a young mother and daughter who were found brutally stabbed to death in Gibson County thought that he might have done, but he was never charged. I also had a cursory look through the unsolved homicides in Tennessee and came across the case of a 29-year-old man left for dead on railroad tracks near Chattanooga in 1989. The medical examiner determined that he'd been beaten to death with a blunt object. The location was at a busy intersection of freight trains travelling from across the country. The train's dead end at a feed mill. Just a few steps beyond that is where Freddie Lee Hicks's body was found. Could Resendiz have been responsible? And what about this? Back in November, about a month after we launched Dead Man Talking, somebody got in touch anonymously via email. They said they'd just listened to the first episode and wanted to know if Resendiz had confessed to any other murders in Kentucky besides Christopher Meyer, who you'll recall was Holly Dunn's boyfriend. The email said, I have a very loose idea that Resendiz may be involved in something I'm working on right now, but that's all I can say at this point. Then last week, he got in touch again, this time by phone. He asked me to keep the details of what he told me confidential for the time being, but it turns out that he's involved with a possible wrongful conviction case, a murder that he suspects Resendiz could have committed. Thirteen years after the state of Texas executed the railroad killer, we're still trying to assess 
the enormity of his crimes. We're still trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and we're still working out not only if his confessions to other murders were true, but if there were other victims that he just couldn't remember. But we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to rely on the 15-year-old confessions of a serial killer who's since been executed. It's pretty troubling that the fate of two people may well lie on an old C90 cassette tape. Um, if you were to estimate how many people there had been... People... Just estimating, not really... I'd say 40. Yeah. Because of the times in between that either I was kind of drunk or whatever. But uh, I have no evidence for that. I had totally... And as soon as I had a place to wash myself... Yeah. Put, it, put another set of pants and shirts and it's everything and there was no evidence going there. Everything yeah, was yeah, gone. Yeah. Thank you for staying with us as this story has unravelled. As I've said before, we had no idea where this was going to take us when we started, or indeed whether people would have any interest in listening. The thousands of you have been with us all the way through, and your contributions on Facebook and Twitter have been pretty amazing to see, not least when they've helped shape the story in its twists and turns. In some ways, this is just the beginning, as proclaimed justice now begin to look into the case. But my own investigation needs to take a break for now. As John Hardin said, it can take many months to even get to the point where an appeal is launched. So it's very much a case of watch this space. So that's it from me. Thanks again for listening. If you've enjoyed what we've done, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All positive reviews help us and increase the likelihood of us doing a second series. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a couple more special episodes for you after this, beginning with a Q&A next week. So get your questions in to me about anything you want to ask. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking Podcast. Man Talking is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our theme song is The Railroad by the band Goodnight Texas, and you can check them out at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas. Join us on Facebook too at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash deadmantalking, where you can follow developments and get involved. And we're tweeting at deadmanpodcast, and don't forget to email us those questions at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com. Thank you.